This is the Voluntarian Podcast with your host Abe Collier, based in Odessa, Ukraine. Here we discuss humanitarian aid, working in an international context, and volunteering. This podcast is a production of Dignity Aid International. Your donations can help us provide humanitarian assistance in this conflict. Please find a link in the description or comments. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Now, on to the podcast. Welcome back to the Voluntarian Podcast. The Voluntarian Episode 3 Introduction. Our guest today on the Voluntarian Podcast is not only just a volunteer, but also an immigrant to Ukraine, who by circumstances of a storybook romance packed up his life in Canada and moved to Odessa, Ukraine in October 2021. Prior to his life in Ukraine, he worked as a computer technician, project manager, freight train conductor, flight attendant, and even as a full-time corporate entertainer for five years. In 2016, he was recruited to be the cruise ship DJ aboard Holland America Line's New Amsterdam. There he met his now wife, and that would eventually lead him to Ukraine, as well as other places such as Georgia, Romania, Moldova, and Poland. Today's guest doesn't give up easily. A healthy dose of stubbornness is very useful when chasing the woman of your dreams halfway across the world, or staring down the very real chance of death by the Russian Federation. Good deeds and service to his neighbors and friends has always been a part of his life. Whether it was feeding the homeless at his church at age 14, repairing computers for friends, or helping a food bank in rural Saskatchewan, Canada to raise $50,000 for a new building. On February 23rd, 2022, our guest felt the premonition of impending doom. He rose early at 8am to clean out his sister-in-law's basement storage unit in case it would be needed as a bomb shelter or hiding place. At 5pm, he started his regular IT shift until closing his laptop at 2am. He could not sleep. Lying awake in bed at 5 a.m. on February 24th, 2022, his entire apartment building shook violently. It could only be two things, a mild earthquake or the impact of a Russian missile kicking off the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Please welcome Eric Fairley. Eric, welcome to the Voluntarian Podcast. Nice to have you here. Thank you so much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you also to all the people that support Dignity Aid and for doing this so yeah i am also grateful <laughs> yes excellent. um as you see uh gary uh, gary's an, another friend of my close friend of mine eric and i have known each other for a year more than a year now uh yeah october eric, 2022 i think we met uh yeah eric might have been the first person i talked to who lived in odessa uh a canadian as we mm -hmm. discussed he has some notes he's uh we're going to go off the cuff and see what we cover. And sure. just so grateful that you came on, Eric. For sure. And I think uh, probably this, the uh, most scintillating details people want to know is what was it like living in Ukraine in those first few minutes and hours and days? And, uh, and, and I'm really excited to tell that story. I've actually told it to a few other people before, but um, they all uh, never published the interview. So... Maybe it was a little, little, little pressure. <laughs> Maybe. No pressure. Yeah, yeah, I'm just kidding. Yeah. When we say we'll publish, we will. Yeah, exactly. So, anyways, uh, and I think it's important for people to know not necessarily what the perfect, you know, st story is and the ghosts of Kiev and whatever you saw on the TV. Like I was there living it, and uh, yes, I live in Ukraine, and and I, I love Ukraine, and. Um, I'm very proud to be here, uh, but I also am not afraid to be a little critical at times. So uh, hopefully we can get into that and why I feel uh, so involved to be here helping and very proud of the last two years to 
uh, with collectively with you know, working with people like yourself and other charities. I started working initially with Cocatsi Monstra very briefly, just a very short time, the first few days, then started helping out uh, Manifest Miru, Manifest Mira. More often, we helped, I think, over 120, I, I was involved helping over 120,000 Ukrainians. So uh, I never expected that that's where the first few minutes and hours would lead, but I'm very proud of what was accomplished. So, uh, yeah, let's get started of the, the, the building shaking. That was a horrible feeling, uh, absolutely, like to be you know, just lying in bed and like, when will I sleep? And feeling something is going to happen. Something's going to happen. So all day, you've been feeling something. You couldn't sleep the night before. You only got four hours of sleep. And then uh, uh, New Year's time, people were setting off fireworks all the time. It's like, so you hear bam, 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 bam. But it never included the shaking, complete shaking of your house. Mm -hmm. So if anyone wants to know what a cruise missile feels like, from a long distance, I don't know where. If it's like an earthquake, it shakes. It's it's uh, yeah, it's it's un, 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 just scarily unusual. Anyways, I, I I tried to say, oh no, it must be some of the fireworks for a few minutes. Try to tell myself, no, no, it was no danger. But then about 10, 15 minutes later, I opened my phone. And the first uh, moments of footage in Telegram started coming of people publishing, like, this is the view from my balcony. Mm -hmm. There's an explosion in, in, you know, from my balcony. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and and just I, I started getting into uh, my action plan. I actually, when I came to Ukraine, um, I... In my mind, I prepared myself when I left, got on the plane and left my hometown of Calgary, uh, that I was walking 50-50% into a war. Mm -hmm. uh, that was in October when I, I stepped on the plane. Uh, and then when I got here, everyone around me was like, no, 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 everything's going to be fine. As a guy, it's like, you might want to get prepared. Like, you got to make your decision with my relatives at Christmas time, I was openly talking about, do you have your passport in, in order? Or uh, what is your decision as a family? We need to discuss this now when this goes down. And hopefully it doesn't. But when, if it does, are we going to stay and fight or are we going to flee? What's our meeting place? And everyone thought I was loony. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've always been kind of one of those people that trying to look ahead and anticipate the future. Uh, and be very prepared for it. So I had packed uh, my bug out bag, as people say in the United States, uh, I think is a, you know, like a bag for when everything goes wrong and you need to run away. Uh, so I had actually already done that. I kind of like rehearsed what I was going to do. I'd even thought through my head about if I had to walk to the border, where was I going to walk? Which mm -hmm. route was I going to take? I'd rehearsed where I would... Uh, even possibly uh, get to a safe place with a friend. We had a drop key and everything was very much in place. And that's, I think, my, my line of thinking, the way I've always been raised. And I guess in Canada, when you're, uh, I worked outside in like crazy elements, when you're, if you're not prepared, you will die. And um, I, I approach like a survivalist. Now, when flash forward to a few minutes after the the big boom uh 
I, I woke my my uh, then girlfriend, now wife, and said like something's wrong, and I think the invasion has started. I started putting messages out to a friend of mine. He pro he asked me. He's an American who was living here in in Odessa. He said, Eric, Eric, if you whoever's the first person to find out something happening, let's message each other mm -hmm. and we will meet up. So uh, uh, my original plan was to get in the car and go with him mm -hmm. uh, to Moldova and uh, to hopefully take everyone I could with me. Mm -hmm. uh, but my Ukrainian family resisted. Um, so I was left with a very difficult choice. Uh, I was very prepared. I had my bags ready. I was just going to lift them and go mm -hmm. and get in the car. But they were not mentally prepared, so they froze and they panicked. And that was sort of the general theme of the first, I think, 48 hours was uh, people were not prepared and they were in disbelief. The lo particular local people, uh, the foreigners were more open to the idea and usually had a, a plan. We've been discussing it already for a few weeks, even in... Uh, like having coffee with a few other foreigners here, mm -hmm. like yeah, of the build up, the, the build up, the, the build up of the mm -hmm. army. It's obvious we're surrounded. Ukraine is surrounded on four sides. You know, Moldova has a possible military. Uh, Belarus, there's military activity. There's Russia, Donetsk, and the Black Sea. Like mm -hmm. there's activity happening. We're surrounded on four sides. Mm -hmm. Oh, make your decision. Mm -hmm. So um, I found. And that's, I think, the tragedy is uh, not enough people, you know, Ukrainians, w were prepared for, or maybe they didn't know how to prepare. And and that kind of was the, the theme. And for the first couple days, we just kind of hid. And uh, we all got together as a family. There was uh, cruise missiles falling, uh, things exploding. So you uh, decided not to go. Yes, because I had fought so hard to get to Ukraine, mm -hmm. I changed everything about my life to be with my now wife. I had, um, you know, given up a certain job, I changed my career, I picked a specific job that could allow me to work remotely. Um, to and be, I suppose you liked her as well. Obviously, mm -hmm. and I, I had worked very hard to get everything in place for about two to three years. Mm -hmm to make the move. It's not easy to go from one country to the other, uh, especially a country you don't speak the language mm. uh, and, and be able to survive. So I had tried to set myself up for, for success that I had taken care of all my business in Canada before I came. Uh, and to, yeah, I was planning on uh, being reunited with her. We'd been separated for a long time, be reunited. And then, um, you know, we should be together and then get married. Mm -hmm. So that was the, the the plan, which did work out, although not entirely in, in the, the order. War, yeah. Entirely <laughs> the order we, we expected. So, uh, but day two was, uh, it was, I have my notes here. It's like waiting, bad, and constantly horrible news. Mm -hmm. So my, I, I, and some things in this, in this our interview, I will change names to protect people's identities. I'm obviously not neutral um, in the sense, uh, I think in our humanitarian work, a lot of people talk about neutrality. And yes, I try, I don't wish to kill every Russian. I better be careful how we say, I, I do not want all Russian citizens to die. Like that is, 
I, I would like that nobody dies, and I would like that there was no such uh, situation as we find ourselves in here, but this is what we find ourselves in here, mm -hmm. mostly due to the actions of the Russian Federation, mm -hmm. and who, um, in a sense, I my life was directly threatened, and thanks to Ukraine and other international partners, uh, I, I am still here. I actually, I think if we didn't ukraine did not have any support it was all by itself in the last few years i would be dead i would not be talking to you here and uh, we all expected in the set first day or second day that there would be tanks rolling in the street and that there would be no more ukraine and a lot of people uh like i said they weren't prepared but a lot of people also were kind of really unsure about what their neighbors would do because there was this sort of like a veil of dark veil of unknown uh, is my neighbor, my friend or my enemy. And I always thought that probably the most scariest part of the whole thing was people in a time of panic, everyone would turn against each other. So your neighbors would want to break in and steal something from you to survive or whatever. But what was very odd is that the social fabric uh, solidified and for the most part and people did not turn on each other. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, great news in the first two or three days is that, that there was a surprising level of unity that like solidarity pe people were not sure if it existed or not mm, and i think because of that people thought maybe you know not to prepare because well it's already going to be over because my mm -hmm. neighbor's going to pro-russian and you know they're just going to like you know give me up to the russians or whatever scenarios played in people's head there was this very dark veil and as the fog of war is a very real thing as we're sitting, uh, my family is sitting all in the same apartment. I, I, I made the decision that uh, and pushed everyone to take the lead that we all needed to be in the same place. Like, because we expected any minute, any hour for the telephones to be cut, the water to be cut, and us to, like I said, have to hide in this basement mm -hmm. because there'd be tanks rolling down the street not knowing what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I felt uh, kind of frustrated with myself that I had not taken earlier uh, or adequate preparations to prepare for, let's say, water storage mm -hmm. or whatever, because in my mind, my original plan was to go. Mm -hmm. And so, and we, uh, my uh, now wife decided to refuse, uh, absolutely refuse to leave. Same thing with her sister. Mm -hmm. I, I decided to stay and at least provide them some leadership in that moment of at least because they were just in their mind totally uh, shell-shocked and unsure what to do so at least try to keep everyone together keep everyone calm and by the second day we started getting really terrible news about Mariupol which is uh, where my uh, so, some of my wife's relatives were living I can't say all details but uh, every hour is getting worse and worse and sounded like uh, that they might lose connection, communication. Um, in the end, the, I can say that all of my extended relatives uh, made it out of Mariupol alive, but I cannot say uh, that where they are um, to protect their, their, their identity. So to the best of our knowledge, all their homes are completely destroyed. Yeah. 
and um, it's a great, great tragedy. And that, that was definitely the first 40 hours, 48 hours were the scariest. But then by the third day, we were all realizing that we had to do something. We couldn't just uh, like sit at home and hope that things would get better. And, you know, in the news, it was the social media was just going crazy. We need to do something to get our minds off of just staring at the news to trying to change the circumstances. And I think that's really my first, the third day of the invasion is when I made the decision that I would do charity and humanitarian work to the best of my ability. Um, as your intro noted, you'd done some volunteer stuff before in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I mean, humanitarian work within Ukraine. So prior mm -hmm. prior to that, I'd only been in Ukraine what three, four, five months. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but I I've done volunteer stuff, but never in a like people are going to live or die today or tomorrow if I do not act. Mm -hmm. And all my previous experiences. It was always uh, more like it is the right thing to do to help this person because maybe they lost their job. They don't have money to pay for food. So I'll help supply them food or something like that. But it was never like if I do not help them today, they may not be alive tomorrow. Kind of the stakes were not at that level uh, that high. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, uh, third day, uh, we decided my sister in law and I and one of her friends, a male friend, decided to go to the territorial territorial defense base. So uh let me I'm gonna try and say this right. I apologize. Oberona Territorialna. I apologize if I didn't say that quite right. So which are the division of the military in Ukraine, which are all uh volunteers, I believe, that volunteer defend their specific area near their they're wherever they're living. So if you're living in Odessa, for example, you would be assigned to a unit to patrol and and defend your area. So very, you wouldn't be moved around. Anyways, uh, I remember getting on the bus and still a constant alarms, constant bad news, and on the bus uh, having a conversation with my uh, sister-in-law that, Eric, I know you want to help, but please be very careful in how you behave when you get off the bus because if you want to help yes but if you are they may ask you to sign a contract meaning sign a contract to pick up a gun and fight uh now you have to make a decision now on this bus do you want to pick up a gun and fight or what are you going to do and i had already kind of gone through my head that no I was not ready to pick up a gun and fight, and particularly in a country where I don't speak the language and I would probably be more of a hindrance than a help. But I said, I'll, I'll go, let's see what's happening. And so we got off the bus, I pulled up to the yard, and this is where it really is probably the most emotional moment in, in those first few days for me is seeing uh, young men, like my age or younger, just drive up to this point in Odessa with their cars, uh, park their cars, and civilian jeans, clothes, whatever, get out of the car, go to the gate, and say, I'm ready to fight. And they were uh, very quickly, within minutes, 
uh, given uh, uh, AK-47, a gun, put on a yellow marshutka, which is a type of public transit bus, like a little yellow uh, shuttle bus, mm -hmm. and likely taken off to Hassan and it's very unlikely that any of those uh, those men are alive. So uh, that was very deeply, uh, like, yeah, that was definitely the most emotional moment of, of the first few days is seeing uh, what is it that there are people around me that are just normal civilians but they are willing to go and against very unlikely chances of survival and fight for their homes and fight for their families in, in a self-defense everything is self-defense here uh and it was just madness uh so we were eventually at one point let let into the gate to speak to someone and this was like a, a not an official base because they were trying to move all their bases around to avoid being targeted by missiles or whatever. So they were in in real time setting up a new military territorial defense base. And it was mostly like a storage old office before. Uh, I offered to help try to like move furniture and everything. But again, I barely spoke any anything. I like three or four words uh, Russian. And I, I very quickly was just like, I was going to get myself or someone else, myself hurt or someone else hurt because just even like lifting a desk, it was like, move there, move there. I, I couldn't quite even communicate mm -hmm. something as simple as moving furniture. But I still went to the lady who had like a list of the skills that they were looking for, people that could help. And my sister-in-law translated for me saying, yeah, this is my uh, like brother-in-law. Uh, Eric, he is prepared to help in a non-combat role. Uh, he doesn't speak any English, or yes, he doesn't speak any, he doesn't speak <laughs> any Russian or Ukrainian. But he's ready to help. He speaks really good English. He speaks excellent French. He, he he's willing to help. And the the lady said, you know, I uh, thank you so much uh, for offering to help my country, but uh, we we don't have a, a position for you. And I was went outside and and just seeing that like the the army trucks were coming in and out. They're trying to move supplies in. And one thing that I stuck with me to this day when I talk about preparedness was that all of the trucks were not palletized. Now maybe if you're a viewer not not in a warehousing, you wouldn't make sense. But basically everything in the back of the truck was loose. Let's say I'll say uh, water bottles for example. I'll just whatever you have a water bottle. And it's one at a time put in a truck. There was no forklift. There was no equipment. There was no organization in terms of let's efficiency. Yeah, I've actually heard that the palletization problem is also an issue for the Russian military. Yeah. So maybe a, a cultural thing yeah. interesting. It's, uh, one, yeah. I want to take a small tangent sure. here, actually. One thing you've mentioned a few times is Russian and Ukrainian language. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, any quick thoughts? Um, you know, in the context of the invasion or in the context of anything else on the some of the difficulties posed by the Russian Ukrainian, I, my understanding the, is that the, the, lingu the, the linguistic linguistic challenges yes. Yes. because most of the southern region and the eastern region of Ukraine yes. have typically spoken Russian. Ukrainian is now the patriotic thing to do, understandably. Yes. But, you know, people spoke one language as a child. 
Any thoughts on that and well, the difficulty of navigating? Maybe? Yeah, th thank you for asking that. And my answer usually is not a very popular one mm -hmm. uh, to the Ukrainians. Uh, so I'm Canadian. So mm -hmm. I come from a country where my family spoke only English, but I'm raised and went to school to speak the second, um, the second official language of Canada is French. So I speak English and French. And, you know, it's not a recent history, but a few hundred years ago, Anglophones and French, Francophones in Canada killed each other over language, religion, uh, all sorts of stuff. And so, uh, yes, the English, in the sense, in the end, uh, won out that conflict militarily, but the social ramifications afterwards through the uh, ongoing centuries was uh, let's make sure that people do not feel they are, um, how to say? Discriminated against? Not discriminated against, but like like forced to, uh, forced to, for forbidden from speaking the language that they prefer or their mother tongue. Mm -hmm. So the kind of middle ground in Canada, I don't, not saying that's all applicable to all countries, all mm -hmm. political situations. The middle ground in Canada was that we'll recognize French as the second official language of mm -hmm. Canada. And now there's even more openness to even Inuit and native languages. Uh, that might be a little more, more difficult, more the different, the, the, I think the more the argument there is preservation mm -hmm. of languages that are uh, dying out. And, 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 you know, like that's a, I don't want to turn this into a Canadian politics podcast, but, uh, there's some, something to maybe relearn there and that, um, what's more important to be united by your identity of your values, mm -hmm. your values, you in Canada, people uh, chose to commonly rather regardless of language to be united by uh, freedom as a big Liberty uh, democracy, those types of themes of, 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 um, values, mm -hmm. um, rather than united or divided upon language. Mm -hmm. And now occasionally there's a few politicians that now poke at the language thing for whatever reason, there's a separatist party in federal, uh, parliament in Canada, uh, for Quebec, for the French speaking. Uh, but I think most people have kind of come at a point where um, the language is not a big deal anymore. We will work through it and, and yeah, let's not kill each other over language. Mm -hmm. So I think that's my, my usually recommendation to people of Ukraine. Right, right now, it hurts. I can only imagine how deep it hurts that uh, your neighbor would want to kill, kill you and, and take you over. Uh, for sure, like, absolutely defend yourself. I have no no issue with that. But on the language front is let's not forget about your people around you. If Southern Ukrainians, yes, tend to historically speak more Russian because they were part of the Russian Federation, uh, sorry, Russian Empire, apologize, mm -hmm. Russian Federation historically uh, hundreds of years ago. And so it's more propagated here, but not not to discourage someone from speaking one language or another. Now, officially, I recognize in terms of parliament and law and a legal system that it it more is more practical to have one. And even in Canada, there was there's I think some old study somewhere that the cost 
of having a second official language is very expensive. It takes more time. It, it's like it's an additional work to make work at an official level. And whatever the case of what Ukraine decides to do, if they want to have, as they do, their legal code in Ukrainian, uh, I think that I don't see an issue with that. I think that's how it works right now. A lot of people in the South, they, the, they, the, all the law is uh, in, in in Ukrainian. Yeah. All but the people, so the, all the contracts thing, yeah. exactly. But day to day, people speak or read and write in common uh, conversations and whatever language they choose. We will yeah. see on that one. Tough yeah. question. Well, we'll see. Yeah, I'm not saying I have all the answers, no, but nobody does for sure. But I, I don't. Uh, if someone speaks to me, I, I don't speak obviously well. I don't speak a lot. But if someone speaks to me in Ukrainian or Russian to me, I, uh, for me, it's more important. In my case, I can just communicate with them at the most simple level. Like, could, could I could I pay for my lunch, please? Like, <laughs> yeah, we're working so, on it. Huh? Yeah, um, I wanted to make sure we covered your thoughts on the humanitarian response in Ukraine. Yeah. You're, you. Uh, you worked for a year for a local organization, which is an unusual experience to be full-time for a local organization. Yes. Um, yeah, for what was it like? What were your, what are your for sure. thoughts about that? Yeah, I definitely was part of, and I want to recognize I wasn't the only one, the early response humanitarians. Mm -hmm. I'm a bit of a unicorn, like, uh, I'm not born in Ukraine. Uh, I moved to Ukraine it's, and stayed here. It's a bit un, uh, unusual. Uh, and when this all happened, there was no UN, there was no whatever, but there was definitely, uh, uh, it's chaotic, of course, but I think of a friend of mine named Yakov, for example. I'll, he's one of the first people I think of that he moved to action immediately and and there's many people like him that drained all their savings and when it actually bought ambulances they bought medical supplies they started evacuating people whatever the risk whatever the cost uh to get people to safety and that and was I know a number of people who had that yes. the same story of delete uh, expending all of their savings at the beginning of the war to try to help. Yeah. Incredible. And those people in the first 30, 60, 90 days are the unsung and often not mentioned heroes. That a lot of those people, they burnt out after 90 days, but they, um, they thankfully did what they did to reduce likely the, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, millions of potential deaths. Like mm -hmm. I was in the display in Kiev recently for um, the Ukrainian um, railway, uh, I can't, I can not remember the official name of the Ukrainian railway system. I, uh, I apologize, but I can't but uh, something like because the train employees uh, followed their duty and their jobs, they evacuated like millions, millions on trains, mm -hmm. and it's it's very important that we recognize those people. Mm -hmm. uh, no, the Ukrainian yeah. railways are a real blessing to have yeah. in this country. Yeah, and it wasn't uh, the UN, it wasn't, um, you know, a lot of things to do does go to the United States and the United Kingdom and other other countries around the world mm -hmm. for, you know, providing uh, d defensive weapons mm -hmm. for Ukraine to slow down and stop 
to the most part the worst worst of everything that could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it was really those individual collective heroes, collective individuals that act as heroes mm-hmm. at all expense that, that, that people are alive. And I remember having many conversations with uh, Yakov, for example, of him like, uh, I'm, I'm going to have son uh, right now to evacuate a, a Jewish lady who's a survivor of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. survivor of the Holodomor, survivor of the Holocaust, you know, and now the Russians are come, you know, so one more time they're coming after, mm-hmm. after, after this poor lady, mm-hmm. something terrible, uh, major tragedy is ready to strike her, her life. Um, and, she, and uh, but he, he was, he, I think he went and evacuated her, got her out safely. Um, and, it was many people with that those stories where they just didn't come to light, uh, but I, I, those are the real real people that we need to thank. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the UN showed up. I think I even wrote it in my journal a hundred days later, or something like days. that. Hundred mm-hmm. later, like one or two people, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah. So you worked with some of the big UN affiliated agencies, uh, yeah. Some of the big INGOs quite closely, yeah. Um, what was your impression of them? So Good, bad, ugly. I, I was very proud to be kind of the middleman. Like I was helping a, the local uh, entities, particularly Manifest Mira, for the first year, um, where I had the view of sort of the outside world, the international world, and um, I could speak English natively, which it was actually uh, an incredibly useful skill in those first hundred days, mm-hmm. because I recognized that the funding to help the volume of people that needed would likely come from the international community, the English speaking world. And even myself, like I drained my savings very quickly and I did everything I could to, you know, feed the grandmas in my neighborhood. I remember seeing people, for example, the, the first week, the bank, uh, private bank or the, the bank of Ukraine, I think the bank of Ukraine to be specific, just like stop working or mm-hmm. something. So, or the banks were closed. So seniors couldn't get their pensions. They got paid, mm-hmm. but seniors couldn't go to a bank machine and pull up the cash mm. to, uh, to, to buy groceries. Mm. So they were literally in line uh, trying to piece together a few pennies to buy a loaf of bread mm-hmm. to tie them over two or three days, hopefully until the bank opened. Mm-hmm. So there's a few cases where myself and my, uh, my, my wife actually intervened and bought groceries for people just locally. Mm-hmm. So, it, and that's what my, my philosophy generally has been even going back many years is that I've witnessed the closer you are to people, uh, the more quickly and you can solve their problems. So mm-hmm. for example, with this lady at the grocery store, you know, to solve her immediate hunger was, you know, like 20 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. 20 bucks. And I can help her now. But if we leave that uh, to go longer, then it costs more uh, to intervene. It gets more complicated. Maybe she's then has to get rushed to the hospital because she's dehydrated or medical complications, right? So like the sooner and closer you can help people around you as a person, often you can mitigate that better than any large charity, any UN. By the time the UN comes along, there's people that were seriously, you know, without proper food uh, for weeks and weeks and months. Thankfully, Mm -hmm. Ukraine's culture has a strong agricultural culture, 
particularly in people growing their own food in mm. the, particularly in the rural areas and they have the open air bazaars and markets where people freely trade uh, or sell uh, you know whatever it is it could be food it could be goods and that actually saved people huge like that the market just kept working there was not like uh, there are big supermarket chains here of course mm -hmm. in ukraine but i think if i look back at canada if the same problem had happened in canada where somebody invaded uh canada and we only have the four major supermarket chains and they just stop working mm -hmm. because they all rely on like long distance logistics people would starve on mass hmm. whereas here because people the small businesses kept working the everything uh people more trade and buy from each other in small groups mm -hmm. and things kept working so mm -hmm. yeah if you you know needing food is someone like your family able to help you quicker i mean probably realistically your brother could help you faster than than uh, someone at the u.n office so uh i think i'll just preface my next next I guess the next segment uh, on that point mm -hmm. is um I would always encourage people if you can help people directly with as few complications as possible that is the ideal way mm -hmm. so how did i get involved with manifest mira and kind of i was involved as their director of international partnerships because uh, i recognize that partnering with larger organizations from outside of ukraine would uh, solve um the funding and the resource problem mm -hmm. so y ukrainians are extremely motivated to uh, help their country and mm -hmm. do everything they can to reduce the harm that has been done uh, and the suffering done by the ukraine the by the russian federation mm -hmm. uh by their their military action and, and invasion of ukraine and very resourceful i would say and using what yes. they do have yes so um, I, I just by complete chance one day, not going to go into details, walked into a warehouse in Constanza in Romania where I met Ina Bilus. She was the, she is the executive director of Manifest Miru or Manifest Mira. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, very quickly realized that with, with her, I, I, I could have some impact. I just had this gut feeling that uh, Ina and I could somehow work together and she had s some very simple problems she needed help with. Mm -hmm. The first one that was on her desk was, uh, Eric, uh, can you write me a policy? Mm -hmm. I have a donor that is ready to give me so much money to buy uh, food for people in need. Um, I just need help filling out this form in English. I guess I do speak, read and write English. But I, I'm just not super strong at it. And I just don't have the time to write something out very formal. Mm -hmm. So I said, sure, no problem. And um, within, not that day, but I think about a week went by. I was busy with my other regular work. I was still working a full-time job. And in secret, mm -hmm. I was working yeah, outside of Canada in secret with that job. And trying to keep, keep my identity, uh, my location secret, which I did successfully from my employer for mm -hmm. a long time. It wasn't my... Uh, proudest moment but stick it to the man anyways uh i i really much uh, appreciate everything that the option they gave me but uh, i was not prepared to stay only in canada mm -hmm. anyways 
Uh, so about a week went by, I came back in, in about like one or two hours, sat in next to her while she was working in, her, in the warehouse she rented to get uh, supplies in and out of Ukraine. And I wrote up the policy, gave it to her, checked off this checkbox or whatever she needed. And, 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 and um, for me, it was very easy. And she submitted, we didn't hear anything for a couple weeks. Uh, we went to lunch. And then I think two, three weeks later, she came back and said, Eric, thank you so much for what you did. Some big number uh, arrived in my my uh, my charities, my foundation's uh, bank account, and thank you so much. Uh, you you removed that that barrier, and so uh, that's what I started to see a trend was in how I was helping Manifest Mirror. So in my business training uh, through business school, there is uh, something called the theory of constraints, uh, or people might say bottleneck or obstacle, whatever word you want to use is that you as the leader and manager, it, if you give people clear instructions what their job is to do and you allow them to do their jobs, if you can remove their hurdles, their barrier, the constraint, they can perform and increase their performance and excel. So I found that's kind of what was I kept doing. I kept on finding uh, where's the roadblock and how can I remove the roadblock? In my case, it was... Um, you know, my, my English language was a big, big one because I could write the grants, I could write a policy, I could speak very easily to an international donor and present a very, uh, uh, and rightfully a very professional image of Manifest Mira to potential donors, to potential partners, to the UN, that they, uh, that they had the trust uh, that we would do whatever we promised we would do or if they were offering us let's say there's a group we worked with they offered us uh, a partnership with so much uh, money and so many hygiene kits so many food kits uh, through our warehouse project and i was heavily involved in developing the project i have a project management training and done many it related projects related more not with food and hygiene but moving uh computers mm. so delivering computers to hospitals and clinics and it's very much the same it's very logistics focused and uh how to anticipate what the hurdle is going to be how can we remove that how can we equip the team with the tools they need to succeed mm -hmm. so uh, one of those in project management there's uh, three big themes are uh people sometimes they use the word uh resources like uh but resources could be people it could be money it could be equipment it could be even like it's things like that so how do i for manifest mirror in the face of a huge uh possible impending collapse of the ukrainian state um because of the russian federation how do i give manifest mirror the the funding the trucks the people and the the real uh, push, uh, at least within my capability, to um, to help reduce the suffering that people are having. How do we reach these people? And yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can also say from my experience, I've worked with Manifest Mirror regularly in the last year. Yeah. And just there's a there's a huge uh, gratitude to you for your work there. It's really yes. it's <clears throat> it's really amazing. Um, your coming coming wrapping up sort of yeah um, maybe your final thoughts on sure the war the future sure the the country that you have chosen as your home yeah. 
I, I think just we'll focus on the results. So uh, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not, can't forecast the future for Ukraine. Um, you know, particularly in the military aspect, it's not my my, my field. But I'm very happy that uh, I was able to impact with collectively with help from the team from Manifest Mirror, from people like you and other people, even strangers, uh, giving me introductions and networking and putting me in touch with the right people that uh, I played a part in assisting. There's 120,000 or more uh, Ukrainians in the last two years. So that that I think I'm very proud of and, and um, hopefully that, that in the long term has some long term benefit. Uh, so going back to what I see more for the future. So obviously my family is Ukrainian and uh, I hope that and wish that we can resolve this more, uh, this generation. It has got to be solved this generation or else my, uh, my children will have to face war and on a continued basis. And I, I don't really, I don't want that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I am hopeful that and then we've seen that Ukrainians and Ukraine is much more resilient than anyone expected, but still a huge amount of challenges. And uh, I'll do my best to support as I can. Um, a more independent, uh, I've really enjoyed being more volunteered the last eight months and just um, helping little, like little things, remove those barriers mm -hmm. with anyone. Um, uh, not with everyone. And I think I had one thought that I, I've discovered uh, fr from uh, a quote I like to, from a soldier I have prepared here, mm -hmm. is to take into account is um, we talk about heroes a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, even people say, Slava Ukraini, Gerum Slava, like glory to, um, uh, glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think we need to come, come to a point where we talk more about um, capacity building in general uh, uh, within these civilian population within and a resilience and a preparedness uh, so that we do not end up with the same situation we had two years ago. Mm -hmm. It's clear that the Russian Federation is not intending to stop anytime soon. Uh, I would hope that everything ends today. But still, the repercussions of what we see will be for generations. Just looking at landmines in fields, the number uh, in the deoccupied regions, for example, mm -hmm. I've been to, and you've been to as well, um, in the number of uh, uh, children that uh, will not have a father because they fathers uh, gave their lives for their 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 country and for their families to try and protect them from from uh, further harm mm -hmm. uh, but I think we need to shift towards this is a long-term thing and appreciate everyone's support for Ukraine and for dignity aid and and what you guys are doing uh, here in Ukraine well, because of you uh, we can continue to help and build resiliency and and um, preparedness for the long term um, as civilian level so like things like medical supplies, medical training, everybody knows how to do first aid. Everybody knows, uh, you know, ba basics as an example. But um, we, we have definitely seen that it maybe is also due to time because the, the fall of, uh, you know, post-Soviet Ukraine is still very much in development. It's only 33, 32, 33 years since independence. 
and there's still a lot of hangover, like a bad hangover in, from uh, the communist way of thinking, a uh, feeling of being, uh, I don't have enough personal uh, power to have personal initiative to change things. Well, we are seeing that people in Ukraine as in, uh, individuals do have the power to affect change and we need to encourage more of that and have people not feel so uh, helpless. Or I think, like I said, back to the first part of the interview was people weren't sure if they could trust their neighbors. Like, are you going to, you know, just give me up to the Russians? Are you going to be fighting me over, like, I don't know, getting food out of my fridge when the invasion happens? People were unsure. But now it's certain that uh, Ukrainians are uh, very much united. There's a few people on the outliers, of course. Uh, it'll always be a few, but the most 99% of Ukrainians want Ukraine to be independent, want Ukraine to be free. Um, and I, I want that for them as well. And I support them in that, but we need to make uh, an environment where people are prepared so that uh, people, the consequences and the repercussions are reduced. Absolutely. That's why I think I think a lot of humanitarian stuff is all about we uh, as giving food kits and 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 hygiene kits or whatever it is or cash. Um, we we are not fixing the problem at the root, uh, and I don't claim to be able to do that. We're usually reducing the harm, and that's a big part they talk about. Is the humanitarian principles is is uh, I'm not I can't necessarily fix poverty in ukraine the dignity aid like as one single group hopefully can have some impact but it it'd be very realistic i uh, won't solve poverty or hunger or uh, removal landmines or civilian landmines or whatever that is all in one shot so the closing quote i want to to share with you is actually from a ukrainian soldier and i think he kind of encircles all this about preparedness and having the capabilities to endure for the long haul. Why do Ukrainians need heroes? The heroism of some is always to correct the mistake of another. All Ukrainian soldiers know this, that these heroic deeds happen not because someone wants to do it, but because there is no other way. There is no other way because someone at the planning stage made a mistake. And those words are spoken by Svatoslav Aleksopolsky. He was killed in action on August 29th, 2022, age 32 years old. Glory to the heroes. So, hmm. Well, thank you, Eric. Yes. Volunteer, Canadian, and a friend. Yes. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you for being here and thank you to all the supporters of Dignity Aid and the work. I encourage you to continue the support up uh, for uh, Abraham's work and all the people, uh, part of his organization and everyone in Ukraine. Like and subscribe. Lots of love to everyone. Mm -hmm.